Hello, Everything Humanitarianism listeners. I'm Melissa Fendira, the new Humanitarians podcast producer. We're dropping into your feed with some bonus content for you. On the last episode of the podcast, we spoke with Degan Ali, executive director of ADESO, about whether decolonizing aid is possible within our current global governance system. For those of you who tuned in, you would have heard Degan bring up her efforts to decolonize aid through the Pledge for Change. It's a new set of commitments made by five international NGOs to reimagine their role in the aid sector by 2030 through equitable partnerships, authentic storytelling, and influencing wider change. Soon after that conversation, our The New Humanitarian CEO and Rethinking Humanitarianism host Heba Ali moderated the official launch of the pledge, which we are happy to share with you here on the podcast. You'll hear Degan explain the pledge in more detail, and then Heba gets into a conversation with Degan and others involved in the pledge and how it's being viewed by organizations in the Global South, whether it'll change anything in practice, and the change process these organizations went through to reach these commitments. You can find out more about the pledge at pledgeforchange2030.org. A new episode of Rethinking Humanitarianism on Global Public Investment drops tomorrow, wherever you get your podcasts. Happy listening. It's an exciting time for all of us who have been participating in this process now for almost uh, two years. I will start off by just giving you a little bit of background about the Pledge for Change and what got us here to this moment, um, to, to this event. The Pledge for Change is a mutual commitment towards building a stronger aid ecosystem based on principles of solidarity, humility, self-determination, and inequality. And the intention of this initiative is to acknowledge the unequal power dynamics in the development and aid infrastructure and ensure a fair uh, future. Particular in regard in recognizing the role of INGOs must play in ensuring Global South CSOs and communities grow in power and independence. It isn't just a statement, it is a true commitment towards transparent sharing of progress, learning and accountability. And um, this idea turned from idea into an actual process through informal conversations with initially with only a few members of the CEOs that you'll meet today, um, who I had the pleasure of talking to and um, asking them about whether such a space, um, an invite-only space, a closed space, a space uh, that we could create of trust and sharing and mutual learning would be of benefit. And, um, and that resulted in this process where we now expanded that space to include um, a larger number of CEOs and INGOs. Um, and it's a work in progress. It's, this is not the end, this is just the beginning. And we continue to be ambitious and evolve over time. I would also um, like to acknowledge that actually the, um, in addition to um, having conversations with a few CEOs, it was actually Marianna Maglison of uh, the CHL who was really instrumental in helping us to get this off the ground. And through her support, I don't think it would have been possible. Um, so we had uh, monthly retreats. They were quite long and extensive, about three hours initially and later transitioned into two hours. And we were uh, using these retreat retreats to share ideas, discuss the barriers and think of solutions. And we were also trying to create a collaborative working groups to identify actionable commitments. So all the CEOs, um, actually got um, a number of their staff involved in the pledge pledges itself, and we established working groups 
Um, and those working groups are the ones who ended up crafting much of the language of the pledge document, um, as well as the metrics that we'll talk about later. And the process was funded um, by a private foundation uh, and participating INGO contributions. So now how is this different? Um, there are other processes um, out there such as the grand bargain and the charter for change. And I think it's different for various reasons. One, I think um, it's different because this was a process led by ADESO, a Global South organization. And um, while in the beginning, we didn't have a lot of Global South organizations involved um, for, 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 I think, intentional reasons, because I've, I personally felt that um, we didn't want to create an extractive process of, um, that has been happening for so many years uh, through grand bargain, through various processes, where we take um, ideas and emotion and frustration from Global South actors um, uh, when we all know really what needs to happen and what needs to get done. And really the onus is on the INGOs. Um, in this case, the space was for the INGOs, of course, the UN and the larger architecture also needs fixing. But in this space, we were creating a, an opportunity to have a conversation with INGOs. Um, and so I think, uh, so in the end, uh, towards the middle and towards the end, we started engaging with Global South uh, leaders, some of them, or one of them you'll hear from today in the panel. Um, and they were very heavily involved um, towards the end in giving feedback on, um, on, the, met, on the pledged language itself, but also giving, um, really heavily engaged in the drafting of the metrics. So I think that's um, one of the major reasons why I feel like it's a different process because it's the first time where we've actually had something that has been led by the Global South itself. Um, and then I think another reason based on my own personal experience with these very large negotiated processes run by the UN, such as the Grand Bargain um, or the Charter for Change, is that it's a manageable number. Um, this is the reason why we wanted a smaller group of CEOs. We could have easily started this process with 10, 15, 20 CEOs, but we were um, very cognizant that um, the larger the number the, of, of people that start engaging, oftentimes we end up also um, negotiating or becoming less ambitious and, um, and not being as courageous because, and that's often what I've seen happen in these larger negotiated processes, such as the grand bargain and the charter for change. I have been personally involved in the drafting of the original charter for change. I sat in a conference space with Anne Street of Catfoot and I, um, and we came up with uh, a lot of the commitments that you see today in the Charter for Change. Um, but what we drafted and what became the final agreed on product was very different. And that's something that we really didn't wanna see. We really wanted to make sure that we continued um, staying on the path of courage and ambition. And then I think the other thing that is very different from this processes and from other processes, and I think this is where the rubber hits the road in terms of while we are very happy and excited to get here today where we have this pledge, the hard part comes next, and that's the accountability mechanisms that have been designed in partnership with Global South organizations for radical transparency. And um, this is, I think, really one of the key parts of the pledge 
that makes it um, really extremely crucial because uh, we have a lot of other commitments, but we really don't have serious, um, I would say, um, you know, meaty ways of uh, tangible ways of really holding each other accountable to what we uh, aspire to. So um, as the pledge for change, here are some of the pledges that um, the INGOs have signed on to. And I'll just read it out. It's available on the pledgeforchange2030.org website. But as leaders of the international non-governmental organizations, we're working with national and local organizations worldwide for a fair future in which all people's needs are met and their rights upheld, governments fulfill their responsibility, responsibilities and civil society flourishes. And on that, we have three areas, equitable partnerships, authentic storytelling, influencing wider change. So in equitable partnerships, um, there are six areas and within the six areas, number one is around equitable partnerships will be our default approach by 2030. This was really, really important because it speaks to the idea of no more direct or at least minimizing direct implementation when INGOs come into um, aid recipient countries particularly in the global south, where uh, they come in and they open offices and they start hiring a bunch of staff and all of that. So the idea here is, is that um, the default will be partnerships and we need to start working on pre-positioning relationships and trust with partners um, rather than pre-positioning goods and, um, and, and things of that sorts and food and all of that. Where there's no partnership or responding to an emergency, we'll find ways of working with national and local organizations as the first opportunity. So if they don't have partnerships, they'll find ways of developing those relationships as soon as possible. Um, and not just with local organizations, but also with governments. We'll allocate more resources to help national and local organizations take the lead. Um, this responds to the idea that we need to be transitioning power and resources from INGOs always being in the lead in our countries, but also handing some of that leadership responsibilities to their partners. We will share the burden of cost in ways that will make our partners stronger and more sustainable. Um, this is really important because we all know that one of the key problems that Global South organizations have or local organizations across, uh, across the world is that they don't get a fair share of indirect costs. Um, there's no real investment in their institutions, capacity, long-term investments in their back-end systems and all of that. So this idea is, is that, we, that the INGOs are really making a serious commitment to make sure that local partners get a fair share of the budget in terms of indirect cost rates. Um, and that they make uh, a specific efforts of having strategic partners and developing their capacity. There'll be a more collaborative approach to risk management. Um, I think this is more about trying to change the narrative that local organizations are, are always risky, they don't have capacity and all of that. And how do we share risks in a way that is more equitable? 
And there will be more collaboration between INGOs to reduce duplication of effort when local organizations are dealing with two or more of us. This is really, really a key issue for local organizations who often have to manage relationships between six, seven, eight, nine INGO partners in any given context. It happens a lot in large emergencies where um, it happens very quickly. Um, new organizations are coming into the environment and you're trying to manage all of these partnerships and relationships. And sometimes you wonder, can they not coordinate amongst themselves better? Can they not have one partnership assessment, one due diligence assessment? and so on. Authentic storytelling, this is where we merge two areas around imagery and narrative into one. Um, initially, it was around two areas, and we merged them into one. And um, the, the organizations are committing to show the actions led by local communities and the impact, impact made by local organizations. Um, so let's change the narrative that we have where INGOs are constantly talking about themselves rather than the communities. When we hear about response in the Horn of Africa crisis, or we hear about response in Yemen or in Ukraine right now, we rarely ever hear about the actions of the local communities and what they're doing for themselves and as well as their, the local partners um, of um, INGOs. So we need to change that. Um, we will avoid exploitative imagery that portrays people as helpless victims, and we will give credit to partners where it's due. Um, this is all part of, you know, imagery that we have seen over the past, I don't know how many years, um, of Black and Brown uh, children and women primarily that are in these really horrific um, images. And so this is one of the key areas that actually none of the, all these areas around authentic storytelling have not been addressed in any previous processes or in any previous documents, as far as I know, um, such as the grand bargain or the charter for change. So I think this is also another area of, to, to demonstrate um, why this is unique. We will strengthen efforts to make all our storytelling ethical and safe based on informed consent and accurate representation. We will stop using jargon that confuses our audience, our colleagues and communities. We will review our words and pictures, creating a culture of anti-racism, reflection and learning. We will use language and imagery to inspire wider cultural change. We'll co-produce stories, photographs, and videos with local organizations and talent. And then this last pledge is about, okay, INGOs, you've made some really um, progressive, um, ambitious pledges here, but how do we influence the wider system? And this is where the INGOs, especially the CEOs, have made commitments to publicly announce the pledge and why they've decided to change the way they work and how they're going to go about it. They also have committed to argue for these changes to, made a, to be made across the aid and development uh, sector. And let's, that's a really important point. This pledge is not just for the humanitarians, it's also for development space. It's not meant only for times of crises, but it's equally important to make sure that these uh, pledges are implemented in development spaces. 
We will speak out against any government policies or international action that perpetuate a colonial approach to aid and development. And by government policies, um, most importantly, this is their own governments that they're holding accountable. We will track our progress in implementing the Pledge for Change 2030 and report it publicly. And we will share what we learn and demonstrate and demonstrate how we're shifting power and resources to Global South with the aim of encouraging other INGOs to follow suit. This is where um, the INGOs will also be playing, the signatories will be playing an evangelizing role and trying to onboard other INGOs to become signatories. So um, how will we measure change? Um, as I said, this is where the rubber meet, uh, hits the road. Um, and, uh, and I think this is one of the most, uh, probably it's gonna be where the pledge um, succeeds or fails. Um, our metrics have been in development now for some time um, through this process with um, uh, m e specialists of the INGOs plus our Global South uh, partners that have, we have been working with. Um, and it's important that whatever metrics we agree on show the perspective of local partners and that they're self-reported measures from the INGO signatories um, and that there's a transparent reporting process. So we'll now engage in probably a one-year process of the INGOs uh, um, developing their own baselines against the metrics and then there will be annual progress reports. Um, so the accountability and learning mechanism is designed to be innovative and ambitious, and it will be shared in early 2023. We actually engaged in a prototyping process with the Ringo Lab. Um, it will be avoiding duplications of existing mechanisms. It will be Southern led and incubated at Adesso for the first two years with the hope that it could be transitioned maybe to another Global South entity. Um, there will be a rotating advisory review group of Global South CSO experts and allies. Um, and as I've explained, uh, Ringo has uh, been generous enough to support us in the prototyping of the accountability mechanism. So currently, um, I'm happy to say that we've just, we're doing the launch today, the official launch, but since we have gone public on this pledge, we've actually had quite a lot of interest um, from other INGOs. But right now, all we can confirm is the current um, signatories that um, have gone through this process already and, and officially gone through the process of um, signing on as signatories. Um, and those are Action Aid, Care International, Christian Aid, Oxfam, Plan International, Save the Children International, and the International Rescue Committee. Um, so, so those are the ones we have, uh, we can confirm, but there's quite a lot of interest. And we've also heard that there are supporters um, that are expanding beyond um, the numbers that are currently indicated. And the supporters are basically this is an opportunity for the Global South leaders, uh, organizations, um, academia, um, networks, and foundations 
to come on board as signatories to basically say, we are gonna engage with this process and ensure, and foundations, um, Open Society is a foundation that has already agreed to be a signatory. So they will um, not only ensure that they're holding their INGO partners accountable, but they will also be evangelizing and helping us get more um, signatories into the process. And so the current confirmed ones are uh, Adesso, obviously, and CHL. Um, the Haitian Community Foundation, sorry, I don't want to butcher it in French. Um, Humanitarian Aid International in India. Interaction, um, the first large um, network that has um, come on board on the pledge, uh, OSF and Purposeful. And if you're interested in being a signatory to the pledge, please visit the website pledgeforchange2030.org and you'll, there's instructions there on how you can become a signatory. So I just wanted to share this. Um, Peter, uh, one of the CEOs uh, from CARE Australia shared this today in a WhatsApp message with uh, other CEOs. And, um, and I thought this was really, really uh, a great quote to end um, this, this session with. So the old world, which once looked stable, even immutable is collapsing. A new era has begun loaded with hazard if we fail to respond, charged with promise if we seize the moment. Whether the systems that emerge from this rupture are better or worse than the current dispensation depends on our ability to tell a new story a story that learns from the past, places us in the present and guides the future. This is from the book Out of the Wreckage by George Monbiot. So I thought that was really an apt way of ending the session because really uh, the onus is on us now to make sure that um, everything that we have committed to, that we stay true to it. And this is not the end. Uh, we we in, started this process with the intention that these three areas that we have now um, done the pledge on um, will expand and hopefully will get even more and more radical and courageous as we go on with other areas that we would like to change in, in the business model of INGOs and in the collaboration between INGOs and local organizations and, um, and the communities, and most importantly, the communities. Um, so, now, um, I'd like to introduce Heba Ali, who's our moderator for the session. Um, she's the CEO of the New Humanitarian and um, an old friend. Uh, she, we have been at this together, I think, soldiers in the space for many, many years uh, from, from maybe even before the World Humanitarian Summit. So I'd like to welcome Heba Ali to moderate our panel and uh, the session for the rest of the event. Over to you, Heba. Thanks, Degan, and I'll invite the panelists to turn their videos on now. In addition to Degan, we have assembled a number of people who were involved in developing the Pledge for Change, uh, three of whom were part of the initial steering group that helped conceive of the idea together with Degan and, and Mariana. So Denise Riskandaraja, CEO of Oxfam GB, Patrick Watt, CEO of Christian Aid, and Sophia Spreckman Sinairo, Secretary General of CARE International, and then two others who joined into the process and participated um, for quite a number of months now, um, Danny Glenwright, CEO of Save the Children Canada, who I'm going to name uh, Danny G for the purposes of this conversation, 
to differentiate him from Danny S. Um, and if anyone's interested in talking about how Danny G could be a very good rapper name, uh, I'm happy to, to uh, encourage that. Um, and Rose Caldwell, CEO of uh, Plan UK. And then uh, Dagan mentioned some of the Global South voices that have helped um, inform the, the pledges along the way. And one of them is Trinner Baz, co-CEO of Purposeful, who is also here with us. So welcome to all of you. I want to jump right in. Um, Dagan, you, you spent a fair bit of time talking about how this is different from other efforts to uh, reform the humanitarian sector in particular, as it relates to localization, the Grand Bargain, the Charter for Change, there's also uh, the Coalition for Racial and Ethnic Equity and Development, known as CREED. Uh, and my colleague, Jessica Alexander, just published a piece today on the New Humanitarian about this, saying, you know, there is a degree of skepticism about the exuberance of the sector every time a new pledge comes along. And in that piece, Patrick, you said the sector has been treading water on localization, making more noises than actual change. And this feels like a step forward. So I'd love to hear from you, Patrick, as a CEO who took part in this process, what makes it different for you? Um, and, and kind of, is it that there were in some of those other reform efforts, failings that this process seeks to achieve? And, and what do you say to those who say this is yet another pledge? Thanks, Heather, it's a good question. <clears throat> and, and just to be clear, I mean, Christian Aid, I mean, worked closely with Degan and others on um, the Charter for Change, which Degan talked about earlier. You know, we're a, a committed signatory to the grand bargain, and we've, you know, we've put quite a lot of organizational effort into delivering on what we pledge there. Um, but I think this does build on um, those and other initiatives in, in a few really important ways, some of which Degan mentioned. So I think the first is that this takes those principles about partnership and moving resources and moving power within the system and applies them beyond the humanitarian system to our development work. I think, I think a second really important piece is this area of authentic storytelling and dignified uh, images, where actually we haven't, I think, as a sector, created very intentional spaces to start to challenge ourselves and to try and align around uh, higher standards. So I think those, for me, are particularly two areas uh, from a Christian A perspective, where I think the additional weight of accountability and expectation will help us to improve. Um, I mean, I do think it's true that if you look at the progress against, against the grand bargain commitments, it has been very uneven. And I would hope that this initiative gives an additional spur to those organizations that, uh, for various reasons, are lagging behind on the pledges they made. So I think it's partly about putting a bit more kind of fuel in the engine um, around existing commitments. And then it's also, I think, about uh, kind of scoping out these new areas of work and um, making some progress there. Uh, and if I can turn to you, Danny S. <laughs> um, Patrick just mentioned, you know, essentially that the grand bargain promises when it comes to localization in particular have dismally failed. And according to the latest data, funding to local organizations actually declined in 2021. So there's one aspect to this, which is putting fuel and um, and into the engine and you know pushing momentum. But what makes you think this can succeed when the sector hasn't been able to succeed at past? promises um 
Thanks. Look, I mean, I, this is a very different process from the one that, say, led to the grand bargain. So I was a member of that UN high-level panel on humanitarian financing in 2015, 2016. There were nine of us looking for sort of systemic reform of the humanitarian finance sector. And from that process came the, the grand bargain. That was different because that was look, taking a sort of overview of the sector and coming up with, uh, with benchmarks, commitments, targets um, that the sector needed to sort of own. And in some ways, it was a top-down, necessarily a sort of top-down process. And you're right that that's been a, you know, it's, the world is a slightly better place that there is a thing called a grand bargain, but it would be a much better place if we all um, uh, delivered further on that. And so this conversation and this journey has been very different. Um, and I hope Dagan won't mind, but you know, I remember it must have been two years ago when Dagan called a few of us and said, look, I'd like to, you, to accompany you on this process. And the initial aim was to have a pledge ready for that uh, Center for Humanitarian Leadership conference a few months later, because we thought, oh, this would be relatively easy. We'll just come up with some commitments and share them with the colleagues. And it's taken us much longer than that because this has been, as Patrick says, about you know changing from the inside out and not necessarily about what others need to do, although as Degan has said, an important part of the pledge is influencing wider change. But this is us sort of taking responsibility for what we can do within our own structures and systems and, um, and networks and, and trying to lead by example. And that's more complicated than we had all assumed because our systems are so diverse. We have different mixes of restricted and unrestricted funding. We have different mixes of humanitarian development and influencing in each of our networks. And so trying to come up with a, uh, with a model for, for, for changing that has, has proved more difficult, but, but it's been a, such an important journey. And one other aspect of, of difference that I think is, is important is a lot of previous um, measures like this have been it has felt to me defensive you know what do we need to do to reduce this or increase that if for me the 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 pledge is more fundamental and it's about the quote from George Monbiot's book that that Degan's just put up which is you know the world around us is falling apart the things most of us on this call care deeply about are going backwards in so many ways and we need to find, you know, we need to find ways of being far more effective on, on challenging the structures of power. And in order to do that, we have to reinvent ourselves. And I think, I, I don't want to speak for my peers, but we see a role in that for INGOs. We're a part of that picture, not necessarily a dominant or important or eternal part of that. But there is strength and power in these global networks that have been built up over time. But if we're going to realize the potential of that power, then we have to fundamentally change. And so there's something very aspirational about the pledge, as well as very sort of technical about sharing overhead costs or, um, you know, building targets. And I hope that's not missed in, uh, in, in some of the discussions going forward. Thanks. Digging reactions to that? A couple things. One, I think I have seen the progression of the INGOs throughout the year and a half. I actually think that some of the CEOs became more and more radicalized throughout the process. Um, and uh, in is the beginning- a, Is that a term that they like used, radicalization? <laughs> well, or is okay, it a, I'll say- more radicalized CEOs. 
<laughs> yeah, but I actually, uh, they have nicely surprised me and I didn't, and I didn't really uh, understand that until recently I was reflecting on the progression I've seen in, um, in, and not just the, ING, the CEOs themselves, but their own institutions, because throughout, throughout the entire process, they have been doing an internal influencing exercise within their own federations, which is really, really hard um, and something I didn't understand. So when Danny S. and I made this agreement that, oh, yeah, we could do it by the CHL, we really didn't understand. I didn't, at least, how difficult it is to move uh, an entire federation. But um, I think that's one one thing. The other thing I think that's really different or interesting about the process is that, you know, it's about creating civil society solidarity. You know, it's not about, um, and before with other processes, it's felt like um, INGOs are part of this bigger, larger top-down process that is often led by the UN or the bilateral donors. Um, this is, I felt more where we felt, I felt more equal and it was more about trying to remove some of those barriers that uh, a lot of times Sophia talks about this idea of solidarity. And, and I think that's where we were trying to, where, that's where we're trying to head to, where, where INGOs move from this idea of being donors to locals, but really being in solidarity to, to civil society. And, and as part of that approach, and you talked about it at the beginning, that you know this was a process that was led by or co-created with the Global South. I wanna to turn to you, Turner, because um, you know, you were one of those advisors seeing this from the outside and trying to shape it. What were you hoping for? What did you see in it that you that you were hoping for? What did you not get the get out of it that you would have liked to see? Or I suppose put otherwise, if you were designing this pledge as someone from the global south, what would it have looked like? And how close is that to what the INGOs were able to come up with? Thank you so much, and uh, and congratulations to everyone involved in, in in this. I I think it's important to just say that this process is happening as well. In the there's a, there's you know it's foregrounding a, a a broader background, right? There's a growing movement of uh, global South organizations and activists who are calling for decolonizing this entire industry, the sector, its practices, and its operations. There is growing realization that, as I think the quotes that uh, Degan mentioned, that change is happening and that change, and that we're no longer just powerless actors who are sitting by at the mercy of international NGOs who kind of wield this incredible power within the system. In fact, in some countries, and I've been part of some efforts where uh, local organizations are bonding together and refusing to be part of coalitions that are led by INGOs because often they reinforce the same colonized, um, hurtful and harmful practices that we've seen that you know, crowd the space, take all the resources, have unequal policies and powers and things like that. So most of us have been speaking up, a good number of us have been speaking up and organizing around us. And I think for me, what was attractive about this process was that it's the INGO leaders coming together and saying that, this wind of change is happening. Let us examine and question ourselves as well. Kind of what, how can we align? How can we update um, our own practices and what we do and how we don't do it? And I and I value obviously. I think it goes without saying 
Degens and Ade uh, Adesso's role in this and their own authentic uh, credibility over the years in this issue for me was a, was a very important. But I come to it, I should say, uh, with a healthy dose of skepticism that is informed by what you mentioned, Eba, before, that there's been many, many false promises and false starts in the past. And at the end of the day, this is going to be, this is why I'm interested at Purposeful being a supporter, it's going to be based on what the substance of the systemic changes that we see, not just from these major INGOs who are part of this process, but how is the third pillar of this, the wider change happening? What's what, what's our role in those wider change happening? Um, you know, what's our collective role in, in creating and supporting this momentum of change that's already happening? And I think that even with the pledge, my suspicion is it's going to be a little bit more difficult than I think most of these folks are on this call. I think there's definitely good intention. But I think the kinds of changes, and, and one of the things that I was looking for, I have to speak directly to your question a little bit, was, you know, sometimes with this change process, especially those that come from internally and that are, as I said, foregrounded by like a wider outside movements, sometimes you make adjustments that basically are slower than, so you're like, oh, we have, you know, we've tweaked a little bit. There's some like reforms but the movement and the conversation is already overtaken that those reforms that you've made. And then they look like they were basically piecemeal efforts as well. So part of what as advisors to this process we were looking for is calling for how can this be a little bit more radical? How can they um, think a little bit more? And like, it has to bite, right? It has to, if you're talking about strategic change and change in this sector, let us don't forget that is part of colonized racist harmful practices that have or oftentimes been perpetuated directly and indirectly by these very INGOs that we're talking about, um, advertently and inadvertently. I think it's important to, to you know, think about how we align that and how those changes are actually felt. And I, and I think this is a good start. That's Purposeful's position. It's a it's good a, start. It's a good start, but did it achieve the radical nature that you were pushing for? I mean, I, I, I do. I, I, I know even all of them on this call will, will accept that it doesn't, it, it doesn't reach the extent of the radical uh, reforms that we need. But I think that in a sector that is so kind of steeped in its ways that with this multiple players and complexities, it is important to start somewhere. And I think what this process is doing is it's starting in some tangible ways and moving in the right direction. But I wouldn't go so far saying that it's achieved a radical change that we need to see. And, and I'm going to come back to that in a minute, because I, I think for all of those watching this process and trying to learn from it, it's really helpful to understand what were the blockages that got in the way and why perhaps the ambitions necessarily lowered over time. Um, and I think one of those challenges is getting the buy-in from organizations, for those that are federated from the various federations, um, even internally within uh, within your own staff. So Rose, I wanted to turn to you. You had to bring along both um, Plan International and the other Plan members, how did you internally kind of move this forward within your own organization? Because to some extent, you as CEOs became activists, having to kind of push for this change among others. And there's a question in, in the Q&A from the audience also saying, could the CEOs speak about where they see resistance to change within their organizations and what are the ways they have found most useful to recognize support and reward behavior change by their staff? What tools um, do you use 
to encourage that kind of uh, organizational change and learning. So over to you, Rose, for some thoughts. Yeah, thank you. Um, when I was contacted first to sort of get involved in this, um, you know, it was really interesting. And again, as Danny said, thought it would be quite a short term commitment, but it turned out to be much, much longer and actually a really useful um, uh, experience, learned a lot from each other. But in terms of um, Plan International, uh, it's been really interesting actually to work in that role of sort of trying to bring the whole organisation around to this. The first thing I would say is that internally there's actually a huge appetite for it. Plan International was not a signatory to the grand bargain and my understanding, I wasn't there at the time, was partly because they felt that they weren't in a position to be able to deliver on the commitments. And so there was a huge appetite within plan, but a great deal of anxiety around our ability to deliver in any commitments we made because we don't want to make commitments that we can't deliver on. And, you know, if I'm perfectly honest, that anxiety still exists. <laughs> um, and, you know, uh, picking up on what Chenar said, you know, it's going to be harder than we think. I completely agree. It is going to be much harder than we think. And, um, but what, what I did is to sort of bring uh, people on. First of all, I invited Dagan along to speak to, first of all, I had to identify who the key stakeholders are. Who are the people that we really needed to influence within the organization? And I invited Dagan to speak to them. And as I say, uh, the, the willingness has always been there, but I think it's also been really driven by the fact that Plan International has been, um, Sort of doing a lot of work on its values and the feminist principles which actually really feminist leadership principles which help uh, make this a real sort of um, a, a good environment because if we're really going to sort of follow through on those feminist leadership principles it is about equitable partnerships it is about how we co-design and how we work together and i think we so you know we had an environment where there was really uh, it was ripe for the conversation, um, which, which is which is always a really good starting point. Um, I think many of us who have been in the sector for a very long time feel frustrated and slightly stuck by this issue. And so this opportunity came along for working together with INGO leaders to hear where they were. It was such a great opportunity to understand where everybody is and how we can support each other in a really constructive manner. Um, and I think that made it attractive to uh, the, um, you know, to the staff and leaders within plan. To, it, it's a coalition of organizations wanting to work together to move it forward. So there were many things there internally that were ripe for this opportunity. But what, but I guess what wasn't ripe, Rose? Like what, where did you face resistance? I think uh, I think if we're totally honest, the area where we face most resistance is around will be around resources, and it, as always in all of these situations, sadly, it you know money is a, you know one of the most influential and powerful things that we have in the organisation and how we use our money, uh, and that is going to be is where we have most anxiety and we haven't we, we don't have the answers yet I think as as we're saying this is the start we have come along to sort of uh, agree um, sort of 
uh, our pledges and now the hard work begins and how we actually turn those into reality and 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 it will be with the money and money is controlled in very many different parts of the organization so it's not a single switch it's not sort of just one decision and it all changes we're very complex organizations with great deals of deal of interdependencies on the different parts and so really trying to change that uh, operating model is not something that's going to happen overnight and you know I think one of the things that's really important internally is the fact that this is a pledge for 2030 and looking forward to the future and how we change that over time I think Chenner always somebody said were we radical enough and there's a great saying I think it was from Peter Walton within the group about uh, incremental radicalism uh, we have to start somewhere we have to change even if it's only incrementally um, and I think this is what Pledge for Change really helps us do. I want to pick up on that and, and turn to uh, my favorite rapper in the group, Danny G. Um, sorry for this inside joke that is not all that funny, but uh, I liked the term Danny G. Um, I know because I was following this from um, from the beginning that there were many frustrations along the way. And I'm interested, uh, having sat in on um, all of these discussions, both what, what you found useful, I suppose, in that peer-to-peer -peer kind of learning um, and, and private context in which you could talk about this, but also where things went wrong. And, and um, for instance, there were many, many organizations that were part of this at the beginning that dropped out along the way. And uh, I know that, um, uh, we, you know, at, at some point, well, we even wrote it in the, Patrick, you said it in the, in the piece where we interviewed you, you said you start with transformational change and you end up with incremental change. Um, but otherwise put, you know, you start with all these ambitions and then you end up, it gets watered down into changing the lexicon. So, you know, two and a half years, basically, and dozens of meetings and various organizations and staff involved in this, and then you end up with, um, what, as Turner described, is a first step, but perhaps not as revolutionary as you all wanted it to be at the start. What does that say about how hard change is? Walk us through a little bit what the process was like. Yeah, well, it's tricky because I joined the process a bit late. Uh, I When I joined Save the Children last year, so I about a year and a half ago, I can't speak to why, you know, some of the groups uh, came and left and maybe Dagan can. But I think, you know, this is, uh, you know, it, it, it's a challenging topic. And I think there's lots of competing um, issues that we're facing in our sector and lots of ongoing conversations about many, uh, many different challenges we have from, as Rose said, resources to, you know, the complex structures that we have. And I think, you know, one of the benefits for me of being a part of this group is I think anything, if we're going to actually make this work and if we're going to realize, you know, some of the ambition within this pledge for change, it comes with having difficult conversations. It comes with facing up to our colonial history. It comes with talking about racism. I think the white liberal narrative that we're colorblind is not serving us well anymore. And we have to be actually engaging together in difficult, challenging conversations. We have to be facing up to the inequalities that we sometimes perpetuate, you know, whether it's consciously or unconsciously. And I think that that can be tough for people and 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 it you know it's an often uncomfortable and we had many uncomfortable conversations and i think that needs now to transition to all the different parts of our sector that's the only way we'll succeed at this if we really face up to the challenges whether it's in our ingo system in the donor community at the local level in governments etc i mean all of the above uh, and so 
perhaps that's why some decided to to step aside and and, and I don't know I mean I think um, as I say I joined this this group when everybody here was already involved so it's been really rich for me to be in, involved in those conversations and in many ways they are running parallel to conversations we're having on these same topics within Canada within Save the Children Canada and within the entire Save the Children movement so I, I, to me that's really the critical piece and I think that um, we need to continue having those conversations. Sophia, uh, you were there from the start, so I'm curious your thoughts on that question. But but also, you know, we're talking about 20 monthly retreats of two or three hours, you know, since January 2021, in addition to the working groups and the drafting of the pledges and the talking of the targets and so on. Um, so quite a substantive process that took quite a lot of time from very senior leaders. What what made you do it and how did you justify that to your boards. There was also a question in in from the audience about how important it is to get the boards um, engaged in this process as well. So walk me through how you how you kind of um, made the case to yourself and and more broadly. Well, it um, and hi everyone. Um, this that was easy because this is the issue. Yes, there are many competing issues, but th this is the issue. And in fact, our board has been informed throughout, has been looking at different drafts and has been super engaged in, in um, also deepening their own reflection. And, and that is very important. I mean, this is an issue we are all struggling with. So the companionship, the togetherness, the learning, I think that's also a difference from uh, previous processes that we in this together, that we can learn from each other, that some may have figured something out that we are still cracking. And um, that is very important. This process has a lot of soul. And, and that is very important to me personally and to, to all of CARE. Um, I would say that to me, what is really very critical, even in the language of the pledge, you may have observed it when, when Degan was, was reading it, you know, many, much of the language in the sector is about localizing and localization. And here very purposefully, we say locally led, which is really very, very different because it's not about localizing what INGOs do or used to do and, and having local versions of, the, uh, of it. This is about having really processes that are locally led in humanitarian response and development both. And, and that is about, you know, the principle that I uh, firmly believe in, which is, you know, nothing about us without us. The feminist principle of nothing about us without us. However, there is still a role for an international community because if everything is locally led and fragmented, you know, where is that? And Degan, you were referring to it earlier that I'm a passionate advocate for that. Where is global solidarity? How can we support each other? And I like to think, and I know we all like to think of more like locally led, but globally connected. Why? Because actually we also have a responsibility and this is the, this moment of reinvention. What is our responsibility? In fact, many of the underlying causes and drivers of poverty, of injustice, of inequality in the global South reside, guess what, in the global North. They reside there. 
some of the underlying causes of poverty in Tanzania, in, in Ecuador, in Afghanistan, many of them, I would say. Therefore, in fact, if we think if the world would be a country, it would be the most unequal country in the world, if the world would be a country. So I think we have a role to play in addressing that in between inequality, that in between injustice, that doesn't reside only within countries, but between countries. And there being inspired by locally led, being inspired by what the South is leading to take that to policymakers, to decision makers, to the private sector in the global North is super important. So I, I, I do believe more than ever in an interconnected world that we can't fragment into pieces in global solidarity, but we have a different role to play than the role we used to play. And, and this is a moment of reinvention. Yes, I, I agree that, you know, you, you asked uh, Heba um, earlier whether it was revolutionary enough. And I think, you know, Peter and, and Rose just mentioned Peter, um, my dear colleague from Care Australia, who was part of this throughout, you know, this, this idea of incremental radicalism or radically incremental, both of it, I think that's so important because we have options, we have choices, but we need to be really hand-holding together as a global uh, community of solidarity, but also within this group. And that's uh, what we have done. To be honest, those three hours every month has, have been some of my favorite because it's, it is a process in which we all can learn and do better and stretch each other's imagination and also do a lot of hand-holding because this won't be easy and it's better to be holding hands as we you know, uh, take on this uh, very significant challenge. I like the way you describe it as a, a process with soul um, versus I think some of the more technical processes we've seen in the past, but I do wanna pick up on your last point there about um, holding hands and being in this together. Um, you noted, Dagan, in your presentation that you kept it as a, as a more closed club because you wanted to create a space for INGOs um, rather than extracting more from the Global South without anything really changes and putting the onus on the INGOs to change uh, what they can. Um, you also talked about the need for a more manageable group. But as, as you noted, there has been quite a lot of interest even among INGOs in this process. And we had another, a couple of questions um, from the audience about this. And one of them is, I'm interested in how you balance having a manageable number of people with being inclusive. How did you decide who is part of the group? Maybe I can turn to you on that, Dagan. Um, I think that, <laughs> yeah, um, I think the, initially it was a conversation, I think with Danny S, Sophia and Peter. I think there were an Aunt Mariana. And it was really important for me at least that it's a small group because once it's a large group, then things get watered down. That was my number one criteria was that it's manageable. It's the size of it. Second, um, but that doesn't mean that it's an, in not an inclusive process. Now that we have the documents finished and the metrics, now we are actively working on recruiting new signatories and all the CEOs 
um, are working really hard to uh, to 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 get this out there and try to help us get more signatories and um, and work on the metrics as well. So so it's not a closed process forever. It, the idea was let us have something that we can one manage that is manageable. That because it's manageable, hopefully we can try to be as radical as we can we can aim to be aspire to be um yes it's not where we would like it to be as global south as churner said but it is a working progress and honestly i do feel that the ceos have moved um in their i've seen progression and um can you give me an example of that like where they were and where they got to Or any of you jumping in about how your mindset shifted as a result of this process? Well, let me add, yeah, let them respond to that. I think that they can, but there were certain, like, there were very critical stuck issues that we got stuck on, one being, like, definition of local actor. Um, then there was issues about um, um, non-compete. So when INGOs come into global South countries and they um, nationalize and fundraise in local markets, those were, I think, two of the biggest um, problem areas that we were trying to address. Um, but I'll ask the CEOs to respond to that. Um, but anyways, my point was to say that, so the intention was never to make it closed. Um, but we also, I think, wanted to have like-minded people. If I, if I remember, Danny, as when we first had the conversation, I approached you by saying, would you like a safe space where you can find allies that you can talk to and learn from and share challenges and all of that, something that doesn't currently exist? And I think that's where the pledge is unique. I think we're trying to do a lot in this space. So the commitments are an afterproduct of creating this safe space where there's learning happening, there's sharing happening, there's negotiation happening. Um, there's a lot of stuff happening. There's an internal change process that's happening. Uh, there's a individualistic reflection and learning that's happening from the CEOs themselves. Um, so a lot is happening in this space. And I don't think that that would have, it would have had the soul that Sophia refers to if we had started with 20, 30 people. And I know that that's, a lot of people are not happy by that, but it was really important for me that the CEOs are in the space are really there by choice because it's a huge time commitment. I, I don't, I didn't want CEOs to come in and out and randomly say, oh, I'm too busy. And then they appoint uh, somebody else um, and they're really not engaged. Um, and, and these guys have really stuck through it and they have given huge amounts of their time to this process. So, um, which I'm, I really, uh, I'm very grateful to. So I, I think the, the call of making it small and handpicking the CEOs, um, I believe was, has been confirmed by, by that process and where we landed. So um, let's hear from the rest of you. How, on the inside, what was that process of change where, you know, you, you came into it with one point of view and came out of it with another? I, I'm happy to jump in here. I think one, one of the um, really uh, working together with the other CEOs gave me the courage within the organization really to push where we were going with this issue within plan. So we were doing our global strategy at the time when we started this process. 
and you know um, localization was part of that strategy but through this process we've really been able to internally push that so that now it is a key pillar of plan international's new global strategy going forward and actually the the pillar really reflects a lot of what has been what we've committed to within the pledge so i think you know working with the other um ceos in the group was able to sort of give me the confidence to challenge harder internally to push for more within the organization um and i think that's it's one place where really uh, I can see where being part of this group has has hopefully in the long term will bring about more change within the plan family. I'm yeah, I mean, maybe Hibba, just to add to Rose's comments, I think from a Christian A perspective, um, you know, we're in a slightly different place from the other organisations. We're smaller. We're a partnership based organisation. Uh, we're not federated. And actually, on at least the partnership principles, we're probably, uh, you know, starting in, in in a different place from others. And I think this, um, uh, and I think this is why we're saying that we need to establish our own organisational baselines because what looks like progress for Plan and what looks like progress for Christine Aid might be different things. But we've all of us, irrespective of our starting places, got substantial room for improvement. And I think, you know, as, as Rose was saying, the kind of support networks are really important, um, uh, been really important to that process. I also think for Christian Aid, you know, we've been through um, uh, a lot of discussion internally in the last two years, which is ongoing, about what the challenges of decolonization mean for us as an organization and what they mean for uh, the world at large. Um, and this, in some ways, gave some kind of practical expression to those conversations it helps us to uh, look at kind of some of the practical ways in which we might advance that agenda. I mean, personally, I suspect that a decolonized aid system is an oxymoron. I mean, the, you know, the long term goal that we should be working towards is a world where actually aid dependency is eliminated. You know, the long term goal is where everybody is, uh, you know, protagonist in their own story. Uh, and that's not the world we're in at the moment. But while we're while we're in this deeply imperfect highly unequal world. Let's at least make sure that we're modeling something better through how we're working. And so I think, you know, Pledge for Change is one small kind of step on that um, on that journey. Um, uh, but I think it's, I think it's, you know, I think it has been a useful prompt. I mean, the only other point I'd like to make, harking back to kind of Cherna's earlier intervention, is that I think one part of the puzzle is how do we um, move more power, more resources to civil society in uh, majority world countries. But I think the other part of it is actually how do we spend more time listening to and learning from and co-creating with people directly affected by poverty. And, you know, there's a danger actually in if we lionize southern civil society, there's a danger that we can actually replicate some of the problematic relationships that have existed between northern civil society and people in poverty. You know, the real issue is, I think, you know, that people, you know, people in poverty are the real protagonists of the struggle against poverty. They're the first responders, they're the last responders. So what are we doing as, an, as organizations to uh, not just talk about people in poverty, but talk with them and take their knowledge and their experience more seriously? You, you raise a bunch of um, pretty fundamental points there that have actually also come up from the audience. Um, and 
uh, Dagan was on the Rethinking Humanitarianism podcast that we host um, just last week, talking about exactly that dilemma between, you know, do you try to improve the system as it stands today, or do you work towards a world in which that system doesn't need to exist at all? Um, and there was a comment uh, from one of the members of the audience saying, it, has that been part of the discussions of the pledge? Uh, has Is the pledge dreaming of INGOs drawing on plans to exit all the countries we're in? Would this be the desired outcome, or has this been at all discussed as part of the commitments? I think, let me jump in. I think, yes. Um, and, you know, for, for me, this, this conversation that we've had with peers has coincided with um, uh, the preparation for Oxfam Great Britain's 80th birthday. So Oxfam turned 80 um, this month, actually. And we've been thinking, like many, many actors in this sector, about what is that future where we're not trying to make incremental change in a broken model, but trying to imagine and deliver a radically better uh, model. And, you know, what we've been discussing is part, part of the sort of what's been remarkable about our sector. You know, if you take Oxfam, you know, we're, so we predate aid. I mean, the official aid system was only created 30 or 40 years in, into, into our life. And that first phase of Oxfam's life was very much about raising awareness, building compassion and solidarity, and raising resources from people, from donations of individuals or from income from our shops. The second phase over the last few decades has been as also as part of the of the official aid system, the development industrial complex or whatever you want to call it, where we've been fundermediaries. I'm sorry if the, to the translators or the interpreters about whether that doesn't work, but effectively funding intermediaries, channeling resources from institutional donors, often in the global north, to partners or communities in the global south. Both of, you can see that we, we, we need global institutions to do some of both of those functions, raise awareness, build solidarity amongst people and move resources efficiently. Um, but the, the third phase for Oxfam, and I think part of what this sort of pledge says for, our, for these sort of organizations involved in this, is to say, well, we can do both of those roles, but how do we do them very differently? How do we tell stories to our supporters to inspire them to be internationalist, to be in solidarity with each other? And how do we move resources in particular in a much more empowering way? And, and I think that's, that's been the sort of the, the journey from, you know, what can we commit to uh, alongside what are the big systemic changes? And one small point, Heber, that several people have been asking about the sort of, um, you know, why this group, why, like for me, I am worried that not these conversations aren't happening everywhere, right? It does feel a bit strange that there's a small group of a community of us who've been having this conversation, whereas as Sophia said earlier, this should be what everyone in the development humanitarian system should be talking about. And we all need to work out what are our respective roles and approaches to deliver some of this change. So this is great that our little community of people have pledged this, and I hope, or as Degan says, more will join, but we need every actor and every um, um, every grouping to think about what more they can do. Thanks. And I want to come to the wider community because there are a number of questions also on what role others can play. But first, I just want to be a bit more concrete about the pledge itself. So when you talk about, for instance, and Patrick, you mentioned that for, for Christian Aid, authentic storytelling was a bit of a challenge for you. What are you no longer going to do in terms of your storytelling that you used to do, as an example? Or is that a question to me? Indeed. I mean, I think it's, you know, 
you know, I think it's a bit too soon to answer that question, if I'm honest. I'm sorry if that sounds like a cop-out. But um, I think we, I think, you know, the challenge with the authentic storytelling piece is that what looks like a legitimate story or use of image or message in one setting might feel very different to someone somewhere else. And I think the other challenge is that, you know, it's not about one individual story or message or image. It's about in aggregate, the picture that our communications are painting and the narratives that we are promoting. Um, so I think there is a lot more work that needs to be done um, through Pledge for Change to work out, you know, what ethical communication looks like, communication with real integrity. Um, and I don't think it's going to, we're ever going to get to a point where there's a kind of checklist and you can definitely say yes or no. I think it's about the kind of, I think it's about the principles that we agree. And then it's about the conversations we have and the account accountability mechanisms we create to monitor uh, our progress and to learn. Um, uh, so, for, so for me, that's where this needs to go. And I think the reason it's maybe going to prove for Christian aid more challenging is that I think we're, you know, as I said, in a slightly different place on partnership. Um, I think we're probably meeting some. When more... you say that, you mean less progressive? No, I think we're probably meeting more of the more standards, and, mm -hmm. and not because we're more virtuous, but because I think we're a kind of smaller and differently constructed organization. Um, but I think the dignified images, authentic storytelling piece takes a lot of emotional energy internally. And it's it's quite a contested space. And um, if I'm honest, you know, I think I'd, you know, there'd be colleagues in fundraising and marketing and Christian aid who say, can, you know, we just have a kind of, can we have a break from this discussion rather than, um, mm. you know, reopen, uh, 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 reopen a whole lot of old wounds internally about whether or not we're getting this right. So, I'm just trying think, to get think, to concretely what changes as a result of this pledge. And there's a question also in, from the audience about which of the pledges moves your organization the furthest from where you currently are. So I'd love to hear from any of the others, a, a concrete example of what will be different now. Can I come in, Heather? Yes. Yes, just a very simple one. And this is not um, earth shattering, but it's a good, you know, first, um, probably kind of understanding even of wh what the beast is, what the monster is that we're dealing with, because it's big. Um, let me give you an example. We had thousands of images, literally over decades at, at, at CARE in an images library. And we did a very quick talk about baselines, very quick analysis. And it turns out that nearly 70% of our images library over many years where um, the images were taken mainly by, by men from the global north. Talk about the power of, you know, whose perspective is, um, you know, really represented in the images we have even. So that's, a, that's really like a, a switch that you can turn on and off very fast. And we have now exactly in a year's time inverted that so that the vast majority of our images are taken by women from the global south. You know, and and that's a simple, you know, but it it's it's actually it it changes everything. And and this is the thing, you know, I came into 
the sector and this line of work. I'm, I'm from Uruguay. I'm a woman from the global south thinking that all of that, of course, should be the way we are describing it in the pledge, you know. And I found how strong, you know, the power of, of the status quo is in this sector. And I've been trying to pull, you know, for, for many decades and, and, and to push. And there are all of these blockers, you know. Some of it, we just, uh, it will take us longer to shake off, you know. Um, some of the, you know, keeping to what we know best, what we are known for, um, that's, it's not easy to shake that off. Um, sometimes also all the, the storytelling um, is of course, you know, there is um, like in marketing donors, they, they actually want probably stories of very superficial, superficial quantifiable, short-term quick wins and results rather than the story of the deeper, more complex, uh, deep tissue work, you know, but um, we we do have an opportunity if we just, you know, at least are conscious of, you know, even who holds the power in something as simple as images. So um, I, I think um, there's always a place you can start, you kind of, you know, you pull off the string and and sometimes a lot happens as a result of that. And there's just no excuse for not um, for, for not um, doing it um, upfront. And I'm um, I'm just so glad to have now all of these partners, all of you, and hopefully many more in this journey because it it does take a village. Uh, but we we need to start with ourselves. And by the way, um, for those who are interested in in Sophia's own journey. Uh, we have a profile coming out about her on Monday, looking at how she's started out in this sector as a 25-year-old woman from the global south and the racism and exclusion that she saw around her and, and where she sits today as the Secretary General of Care and how those experiences have shaped her own perspective and the change she wants to see. Uh, Rose, I think you were trying to come in. Yeah, just to give you some examples of concrete things that we have done, certainly within Plan International UK. Um, you know, a, a big part of the challenge is our mindset around these issues. And so what we have done is rolled out power, privilege and bias training amongst all of our staff in Plan UK. And it, I mean, it's not just about the training, it's then how we go ahead and implement that and think about how we work in partnership with others, with that understanding of power and privilege. And when we say uh, equitable partnerships, we're not, we're talking about, and I think it was in one of the questions, uh, it's not only equitable partnerships, it's equitable partnerships within the plan family, you know, between plan the UK and our country offices, because I think how we behave is then passed on to country offices and how they behave with their partners. And so really trying to um, sort of look at where, how we change our mindset about how we work with our internal partners within the plan family, as well as those that are outside the plan family. We also carried out in the plan UK, a um, uh, we brought in an external person to audit all of our communications um, and also our advocacy communications, our advocacy output. And it was a really fascinating exercise and um, uh, unearthed quite a lot of challenges for us, particularly, you know, when we were looking at our advocacy work and how we were being blind to the colonial history of, of our organizations within our advocacy work and um, within our communications work, 
we developed a set of ethical communication principles. It's not a checklist, because I'm not sure checklists really work, but just questions that we ask ourselves every time we, we communicate, who's communicating um, and, and so on and so, so forth. And another um, piece of work that we have done is we're sort of starting to look with um, a partner, Social Development Direct, at what is an equitable partnership. Is every partnership equitable? If, is every partnership transformational? You know, because if we look at the number of partners we have and the amount of resources that we have, I think we have to be very realistic to say that every single partnership is going to be strategic and equitable. And so we're starting to think within Plan UK about that. And do we pick, you know, do we work with uh, one or two partners to move them from work from where we are, which is potentially fairly inequitable, to having a really strategic and equitable or transformational and equitable partnership uh, with a smaller number. So I think we've got choices to make around this. It's the beginning of the work on this, uh, really beginning to really understand about what we mean, because I think we can throw these terms around very easily. Uh, people will become very disappointed if we think that we can have with every single partner we have, which spans many, a really equitable relationship. But we have to be intentional and purposeful about what we do and do it in conjunction with those partners. And we have a great example from um, our work in Ukraine where actually one of the, the partners actually did due diligence on the INGOs and then choose which one they wanted to work with. Now, that whole process just completely shifted the mindset and the power balance from the beginning. Which is really interesting because, you know, to the point that um, I think, Sophia, you made earlier about the distinction between localization and, and locally led. Uh, somebody had noted in the audience when, when the pledge talks about allocating more resources, more than what? because then the underlying assumption is that the INGOs still control the resources and then decide on their allocation, which this person pointed out doesn't seem consistent with the goal. So I think there is quite a lot of thinking um, that that's <laughs> seemingly still needs to happen around kind of exactly um, what that balance is between localization and, and locally led. Um, there are a number of questions and I'm conscious of the time. We've got about 10 minutes left. So uh, Denny, I'll come to you, but I, I know um, I'm gonna ask you all to be very brief so that we can um, fit in as much as possible in the remaining time. There are a number of questions around kind of concretely what, what this looks like more so on the structuring side. So what is the implications for INGOs who run country offices and are they committing to restructuring? Um, what do these CEOs say? Um, sorry, what kind of investment will you be um, making to help your internal staff and, and mindset shift? Um, and then a question around, um, I appreciate the courage it takes for CEOs to step up in response to this call to change. Given the competition for limited donor funding, how are the INGO CEOs anticipating and preparing for the shrinking of their staff and capacities that equitable partnerships may imply for them? So a number of questions there around how this will actually translate into restructuring of your organizations. But Danny, go ahead. Uh, three well, very quick uh, examples. One is, uh, oh, sorry. Uh, I've started Danny S and then Danny G. Okay. 
Uh, three quick examples. So our comms team have been involved in the Pledge for Change process. And if you if you live in the UK or are familiar with our shops, we've had for 20 years something called Oxfam Unwrapped Cards, which are these fantastic mechanisms to sort of raise money, but also raise awareness. That team has completely overhauled those cards using the Pledge for Change process. So if you're in the UK, go to one of our shops and have a look at these cards, which have been redesigned on the basis of the Pledge for Change pr uh, principles. A second sort of hot off the press example, which I think I'm okay to share, which is where this week we've been doing budgeting and forecasting for the next few years at Oxfam Great Britain. And a new line has appeared, which is um, the, the change in our forecasts because of our commitment to share ICR, indirect cost recovery, with our partners on a proportional basis. So hitherto, if we'd got a million pounds uh, grant, we would have kept the 7% to pay for costs and overheads here in the UK. Our commitment at Oxfam GB anyway, is that if $100,000 goes to a partner, they will get 7% of that $100,000 to pay for their overheads. And on the basis that, you know, many of our organizations have been, have only allowed, have become this big, strong and stable because of our access to these sorts of core resources. And so it only feels fair that we do that. So those are two practical examples in which the Pledge for Change already is changing practice here at, at Oxfam Great Britain. Thanks. Danny T. Yeah, and I'll just add a couple as well. Uh, so at Save the Children Canada, we've, you know, I think we have a tendency to projectize everything we do in the sector. And we look at this as, okay, what, what's the beginning? What's the end date? Uh, and, and recognizing that this is a permanent journey and discussion, we've uh, created a new role. It's a senior director for anti-racism, anti-oppression and decolonization that reports directly to me. That is an investment that we've made organizationally to sort of support this process over the coming years as this is a key part of our strategy. Uh, at, at the Save the Children global level, I think that what we've done is really align the Pledge for Change commitments to our own internal commitments around localization. And you know, there's there's the part of channeling funding to local partners, but we're trying to leapfrog that in some way. So I just got an example this week from our Somalia country office where they actually just connected. I, I, you know, this is in line with seeing ourselves as more conveners, facilitators, door openers, using our power to do that. And so the Somalia country office has connected a local agency we've worked with there for a long time directly with the EU and supported them through co-financing to get the funding themselves and all will all we will contribute is some technical expertise so that won't be in our in our indicators because it's not actually flowing through us it's 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 taking this to the next level which is saying how can we open doors for local agencies that we work with to get to make those introductions so they can get funding directly and i think that's where we need to go as quickly as possible as well as as making sure that our funding goes to local agencies so just a couple examples from safe thanks Really helpful, thanks, and and um, useful to see. Despite the fact that, as some have pointed out in in the audience, you know, there is still the whole big structural problem of of why countries are in need in the first place, and that's a topic we've been discussing a lot um, on the Rethinking Humanitarianism podcast as well. But that, in the meantime, there are some concrete examples of how things are changing. I want to ask one question about the role of others in this process, and then come to kind of accountability and the way forward um, and then close. So there were a number of questions here around, okay, so you you started with a smaller group. Um, I think you've explained why. What does, how do others now get involved in this? And, and in particular, quite a number of questions around donors. Um, is the pledge exclusively for INGOs? Will donors be involved, um, including potentially as, as supporters of the pledge? Someone noted that, you know, the reality 
is that the reason storytelling is so colonial in nature is 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 partly linked to fundraising. And so what what's the role of donors in supporting or demanding this change and how does this fit into the effort? Um, and others asking how how um, you will work with some of the other processes like um, the Charter for Change and the Grand Bargain as you move forward um, and how others can support. So maybe, Dagan, you, you can take that one. Yeah, um, so I think one of the things that has to happen in the next stage is the metrics. So we have to align each organization has to align, has to do a baseline process, number one. And number two, there is this process of alignment of what they're currently measuring with the pledge. So what they're currently measuring may be aligns to the Charter for Change or the Grand Bargain or internal processes and all of that. So imagine a massive federation like Save the Children or Plan International now have to figure out how to align all of that from across the entire federation to the pledge. So it's going to take some time. So I think we're going to spend the first year on that process of doing the baseline and that alignment. Um, and uh, so, and then I think this is complementary. I think it's already been said, it's not meant to be, um, I see this as, as Patrick said, as a way to put um, life into existing processes that are slowly dying and needing of oxygen, like the grand bargain. So, <laughs> so I think that uh, I, I hope that we can get the signatories also um, actively engaging with the grand bargain and um, and the bilateral donors on their commitment. So one of the things that we we could be working on is saying, okay, Samantha Power has now uh, recommitted to this. How do we get the UK government to redo to do that? How do we get the Germans to do the same? How do we get all of these other bilaterals, um, uh, the Canadians, and all of that? So I think there is a process that we have to go through to to really support existing initiatives. Um, just and briefly, then, uh, Digan, because yeah. there, there's a piece in there in, from the audience saying, I'm still struggling to understand how signing up to the pledge is going to add additional value when my organization has already signed up to the grand bargain, to the Charter for Change, and is working hard to live up to those commitments. So uh, like for these organizations that are committing across a number of different fora, um, how, how do they engage with this in addition to everything else? I think what we are measuring or what we're pledging to do is an extension of what they're already doing. Um, I think it's just uh, being a little more ambitious than what they're already measuring. Um, some of them say, okay, we want to give overheads, but they don't really say exactly how to do that. Um, so in the pledge, we're trying to have some metrics around it. So I feel like the pledge will help them concretize as uh, others have said, their existing processes and consolidate all of these things that they're doing. Um, I think it's a really good process for the INGO federations to go under uh, to go go through that process. I think the pledge is forcing them to really consolidate all of these different measurements that everybody has. Um, so I think that's a benefit. Number two, um, the grand bargain and um, the Charter for Change doesn't have those uh, pledges around influencing the wider sector. It doesn't have the pledges around storytelling. Those are very different and concrete ones that I think will provide a value add to an INGO that's not a signatory right now. Um, 
I think uh, if you are interested in uh, in signing on, um, we what we will do is an induction meeting between the secretariat and one of the CEOs, um, uh, the core CEOs here in the room, and we will talk through what that commitment looks like and what you have to engage in. Primarily, the accountability mechanism, signing on to the metrics and doing a baseline and annual reporting against that baseline. And just in the interest of time, um, I guess there are tons and tons of questions in the chat. Um, so you you will clearly have another <laughs> need for another uh, session like this to answer them all. But there's one that I thought would be useful to end on, which is um, the grand bargain failed, but how long did it take people to recognize that? And I'm curious what the measures of failure might be in this pledge, which is just as important as measuring success. How will you know you have failed and how prepared are you to pivot change or try something entirely different if it doesn't work? And, and maybe that speaks to kind of where you want to see yourselves in one year if this succeeds and how, how you know if you haven't gotten there. And, and I, maybe I can just turn first to you, Turner, in terms of what, what you would like to see and what, what failure would, would look like to you. Thank you so much. I, uh, I think for me, just listening to this conversation and this process, I think it's reflective of some of the sentiments we're hearing. The important things here about power and money and money and power and see who's willing to shift, let go of that. Because storytelling and all of that is like we're stuck in the system that is frankly, I think it's already been described. So if we want to see change and, 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 and how that changes over time is looking at who has access to the money. And I think what the conversation we're having here is about how do we tweak that? It's about how do we uh, share some of that power? But I think what we really need to set as a goal and then work towards is about how do the organizations in this room relinquish the huge power that they have positional resource um, and share that with local organizations and local groups. And that I think will be reflected in not just uh, Danny, as you were saying about sharing stories, but it could also be just about amplifying stories because now I think that the system of even our abilities to tell our stories have changed, right? Like in these communities. So it's kind of a, a different level of partnership that means you have access to markets where you can amplify that those kinds of stories, and then we work together in uh, in creating a, a different scenario. But I think it's clear from this conversation that much more needs to be done in the comments. But this is like a, a, a an important step in the in the right direction. Any last one line answers to what failure looks like? Uh, failure is is not being able to build a strong, vibrant, independent, resilient civil society close to the ground. This, the pledge is a means to an end. That end is building people's power. And I think, you know, we, are, you know, those of us who are CEOs of these organizations are, are privileged to serve in these bits of civil society that do hold money and power as Chernos is. But if we don't use that money and power to help build people's power close to the ground, then we will have failed. Yeah, just to build on that, I think, you know, failure would be affected communities, communities affected by crisis, communities affected by poverty, not being heard, and their insights and experience not being acted on. I think the question is how, how you measure all of that, which I suppose you're all working on through this accountability framework. Failure would also be if Degan, if Geno, and many others say, you know what, not good enough, very slow, not great, really disappointed. If in six months that's what we hear, then then we've then we failed. 
So Dagan, with that, maybe I can turn back to you for some closing, closing thoughts, including what success looks like, because I think that's probably equally important where, where you want to see this, uh, say, in one year's time, um, but also uh, any, any other final thoughts before we close? Um, thanks, Heva, for the great moderation and all the CEOs. I'm internally grateful for you taking the time and trusting me in this process for almost two years. Um, your time is precious, so I really I value it. Um, so I think success looks like, honestly, a, a place where, um, as Danny said, we, we uh, Danny asked, where we have a vibrant civil society that is well-resourced that can hold their governments accountable, that can hold the bilaterals accountable, that can hold the private sector accountable. That's what success looks like. And success also looks like where we see, where we use the pledge for change process in active situations right now. So there's a conversation ongoing right now is how do we actually test this pledge in the Ukraine crisis? Or how do we test it in Horn of Africa crisis? And getting the partners of these INGOs who are signatories to feel confident enough, strong enough, and not be scared to hold their INGO partners accountable to say, hey, this commitment on overheads, your last grant uh, to us, you didn't share your overheads with us. That's what I would like to see is that we get away from this role of being very uh, passive and subservient to the INGOs and actually actively hold them accountable. This will only work if we as the Global South really get our act together and start using these tools as an accountability measure of our partners. So, um, so that's my, 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 my plea to my Global South uh, colleagues is please, please, please. This will only succeed if you use it actively. Um, so I just wanna thank everybody and uh, watch the space more as we come up with our accountability mechanism and, and please uh, hold all of us accountable to making the pledge for change a reality. Thank you all.